So we have a whole generation of students, yeah. of young people, who have been told not to fight their sin when they might have had a chance to fight it and win. And the only person I know who wants you to not repent of your sin is Satan. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm joined today back from Christmas break, not only by my normal co-hosts, Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, but also by special guest, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. How are you all doing today? Wonderful. Great. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. Well in the Lord. Very happy to be here with you, brothers. We are excited this week to welcome Dr. Butterfield to the show. She's a former professor in the English Department and Women's Studies program at Syracuse University and is the author of a number of books, most recently, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. She's been a stalwart defender of the biblical truths of Christianity, especially in the areas of sex and sexual identity since coming to faith herself in 1999. Rosaria, welcome to Stand Firm. It's a delight to be here. Thank you so much. So there's so much we'd love to talk to you about and so much we appreciate about your work. We want to get right into it. So why don't you, and you can include any more biographical info that you'd like along the way. Why don't you start with a brief summary of your most recent book? What are the five lies and why did you feel the need to write about them? Yeah, actually, I'll start with the why, um, because I said Gospel Come with, Comes with a House Key was going to be my last book because I don't like writing. I like reading. I don't like writing. So, um, uh, but but almost as soon as Gospel Comes with a House Key was published in 2018, I had moms and grandmas writing to me, either writing to my website or stopping me at Costco or coming to church or talking to me at my co-op or school and saying things like, what is going on in this world? Uh, if Christ is not divided, why are Christians? Uh, my my pastor says we need to major on the majors, but we don't even agree on what the majors are anymore. Mm-hmm. What happened? And so I sat down and I thought about it, and it seemed to me that three reasons uh, produced five lies, and that given that I was one of the liars, uh, I should probably write a book about this, both so I could make my repentance public, but also provide, hopefully, a bridge uh, forward. And so the three reasons that I believe the church can't major on the majors anymore are uh, as follows. The first is that we have failed to see that the seeds of the gospel are in the garden. The way Richard Gaffin put it in his excellent book, you know, no Adam, no gospel. So if you're going to throw out the Old Testament, act as though fruit of the spirit can just kind of dance upon a uh, a non-image bearing, non-ontological understanding of of sex and nature, you don't have the gospel. Um, So that's the first one. The second one is that people did not seem to know what time it is. And almost intentionally so. I want to say some of these big parachurch ministries have a lot of money invested in not knowing what time it is. Mm-hmm. And what time is it? It's post Obergefell. It's post Bostock. Um, and what I mean by those two things is these are Supreme Court decisions. One legalized gay marriage in all 50 states and inserted um, a redefinition of legal harm. Harm now being harming to someone's dignity. They call it the dignitary harm clause. So you, how do you harm my dignity? Well, yeah, it used to be if I were a lesbian, you harmed my dignity by if you're a pizza seller, you don't sell me a pizza. Uh, But now it's you fail to affirm my LGBTQ plus identity. 
And then the third reason we are in the place we are in today is a failure of love. We no longer have the courage to love our enemies. And instead, mm. we would prefer to simply pretend our enemies are our friends. Mm. And those three lies have launched into the evangelical world five lies. Uh, the first lie is that homosexuality is normal. The second is that pagan spirituality is good. The third is that feminism is good for the church and the world. The fourth is that transgenderism is normal. And the fifth is that modesty in speech and in dress is an outdated cultural expectation for women that is harmful to women and ultimately encourages a harmful kind of patriarchy. And um, what I do in the book is I start with my own repentance. I mean, obviously, I believed all of these lies as a unbeliever. In fact, I was a gay rights activist. I was a lesbian. I wrote policy. I testified before the legislature in New York. Um, my fingerprints are all over this. But even as a Christian, sanctification comes slowly. And as a Christian, I promoted ideas that have lodged into the evangelicalism in a way that have produced the very heresy I am speaking out against. And so um, mm. there you have it. And what's good about, what's important about repenting, because I've had people say, couldn't you just learn? Everybody's a learner. Couldn't you just learn and kind of fall forward on your learning? And I, I could and I have, but if you've sinned, you need to repent for two reasons. The most important is that it gives glory to God. We have too many Achans in the camp right now in evangelicalism. Maybe that's why God isn't blessing us. Maybe we have too mm. many learners who are covering their tracks, burying their booty in the ground and not repenting. So one is it just gives glory to God. You need to do it. But the other is it's a very firm way of telling the people who are reading your books, mark and avoid, don't go there. So a lot of the sin that I'm repenting of is still in books. I haven't, those books haven't stopped selling, but, but you can at least read them now knowing, wait, I don't, I don't believe that anymore. I don't do that anymore. That's a sin. Don't follow me there. Mm -hmm. So those are the reasons that, um, that I think it's important. Yeah. Something you said That's reminded me of a, of an adage that I heard recently. I forgot who said it, that, you know, the modern church has, uh, when they heard Jesus say, pray for your enemies, they have forgotten that that means that you would in fact have enemies if you, if you were <laughs> a Christian. And so it's like, and I think that's, um, you know, that just when, when you were speaking, it reminded me, I think that's a really uh, prescient observation for kind of the state of modern Christian witness, at least in certain parts of the West. Cardinal Sarah would have something else to say about that over in uh, Nigeria, but, but um yeah, that's that. Those, those are fascinating, fascinating. Um, I mean, the reasons and then the, the cause and the response to the book has been, you know, like, what have you found it to be? I mean, you wrote it specifically. I think I heard you say on one for 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 women in particular, or grandmothers and mothers. How has that been received? I feel like such a failure every time I try to write a book for women. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just I don't know. I just it doesn't seem to. I don't have a good sense of myself. Um, I don't tend to keep up with myself. I guess I should tell you that, that I don't have a ministry. I have a, a home and a church and I have children and a grandson and I have, 
you know, potatoes to peel mostly. And so I don't keep up with myself. So I don't actually know like how the book is doing, but I do get the sense just based on the interview requests that there are a lot of men looking over the shoulders of the women reading the book. Um, but, you know, I, I did write it out of a, a desire to respond to heartache, specifically the heartache, the broken heart of a mother who has a child who has who is lost for now to the LGBTQ plus movement. And mm -hmm. it's not just a movement of sinful practices. It's it's become our nation's reigning idol. So it be, it, it it's a it, it's a it's a challenge for, for mothers and grandmothers. And I think it's a different challenge than it is for fathers and um and grandfathers, but it is a challenge to stay connected to your loved ones without becoming indoctrinated by them. And so I wanted to provide some tools to do that. But it's okay with me if you guys want to listen in or read over the shoulders. I'll um, you know. No, I think it's really important that, that you do that for women in particular, because the I think uh, I think it was Joel Whitney, uh and uh, his discussion about untethered empathy and how and how that that can be a particular sin that women in particular can fall into, because you know you you love your son, you love your daughter, you love your the people around you, and you're you're made to to nurture and right and right you really want to keep that connection right. So right. how it's a, so I mean, I, I mean, it's even in, you know, I, women I know personally, and they, who've been in my church, we lost our building and my home, all this kind of stuff because of this fight over sexuality are still finding it hard to draw, draw lines within their own family. Right. Uh, it's right. so I'm glad you're right. Absolutely. It, um, women it, it, yeah. Dare I say it, it is why, um, it is why we are, we women are more likely to be deceived. Uh, and I know that that's like, I've already thrown a bomb and we haven't even been talking for five minutes. Um, but I, I really do mean that, that one of the great, um, one of the amazing realities that the Lord has allowed me to see is what it was like to be a very strong woman on the top of my career, a leader in charge, blah, 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 blah. And then to hear the call of the gospel, to repent, to turn, uh, and to really le just leave that at the foot of the cross. And now to be in a um you know a, a covenant member of a church a married woman with children and a grandson and so i i have this covering with my husband and my church and i have this rootedness with my children and my grandson and to realize how much stronger dare I say it, I am, how much safer I am. But one of the things that that covering, my covering of my husband and my church has done for me is it's allowed me to slow down some of my assumptions, my quick assumptions, where I'm more easily deceived. And I am more easily deceived because I am more easily, I am a nurturer. I am built that way as a woman, not, you know, it's not my Myers-Briggs score or anything like that, but just simply as, you know, ontologically speaking, I am built to want to see things from the point of view of others. And that isn't always the very best way to go about helping them. Do you think that feminism, and I hesitate to even use the word because it's it can mean and has meant so many different things over so many years, but I use it because you used it. Um, do you find it to be a sort of necessary precursor to LGBTQ inclusion in some ways, in all ways, every time, sometimes? Right. I think as we'll as we'll talk about in a second, this is a particular 
question that we in the ACNA have as we handle differing views about the role of women in church. Sure, sure, sure. Well, you know, there are so many ways to angle in on the feminism issue, but as the the philosopher in me just wants to go down to the most basic um, uh, kind of even worldview assumption, and that is that um, a, a basic worldview assumption of feminism is that there is a difference between sex and gender. And that difference is not only a, a kind of uh, factual difference, but it is a necessary difference for women to not be hurt or harmed in the world. And that is not a biblically true statement. So uh, one question is, is there anything that is biblically false that is good for anything? And the answer is no, teleologically speaking. But we can unpack that a little bit. Um, you know, sex, at least according to a feminist, an older feminist perspective, is um, just the biological reality. As women, we can create life. We can uh, we can have babies. We can um, fulfill our creation mandate that way. But what if I'm called to be an astronaut, Nick? You know, we like. How am I going to pull that? Well, good news. There's another category separate from sex, and that's gender. And that's cultural. And so you can have it all, you know, you can, you can, you can have it all. And, um, and creating a category of personhood that is separate from a creation ordinance category right. is harmful for the reason and the purposes that God has for you. And mm -hmm. what we have seen is while feminism, even in its most benign form, even in the form that the church loves to say, oh, well, that part is good. That part is good. This part is bad. Even that part has this separation to it. And what you see today is that transgenderism has simply said, it's never about sex and it's always about gender. And you see there two things. One, bad ideas never stay where you put them. They mm -hmm. always grow yeah. like cancer, right? And sin does the same thing. So um, I would say feminism is is pretty much dead in the world. Transgenderism killed it. And the only place I see feminism alive is the broad evangelical church. I don't see it any other place. Um, we've lost Title IX, folks. You know, you've got, um, you know, men in almost all women's sports wreaking havoc, destroying those women's spaces, which had been really the harbinger of a kind of feminist accolade in the world. But if the church doesn't understand itself as the church militant until we are the church triumphant when Jesus returns, it will always be in that embarrassing role of lagging about, you know, five years behind the world. <laughs> so instead of actually leading the world, mm -hmm. We're just all running a 10K and broad evangelicalism is just a little slower than the world. Well, I don't think that's progress. So I think that separation, that that uh, even that almost an ontology of it, this idea that you have these competing sides in you that must be honored, are a real falsification of what it means to be an image bearer of a holy God. We are yeah. Genesis 1, 128. You are an image bearer of a holy God as a man or as a woman, which, you know, when I speak to school boards and I meet, you know, I meet the dad who castrated his 14 year old son and is now regretting it. 
You know, there is no mm. person on the planet who needs to hear the gospel more than that, both the mm. son and the father, because um, ha if they put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will both be glorified. And the eternity, the eternal reality of that son is that he will be the man he was meant to be. Yeah. Uh, and so these are the gospel is 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 absolutely crucial for these days, but it can't be this dumb watered down one of a kind of, you know, weak. It's almost like we're at the Iowa caucus, you know what I mean? And we're just trying <laughs> to make sure everybody's got a little piece of the pie. And, uh, you know, I just don't want David French to be my pastor. You know, I don't know what to say. I just I just don't want pluralism to be my gospel. I want it straight up. And so that separation of, of, of sex and gender is the biggest problematic issue. Mm -hmm. And one of the things it's led to, of course, is that um, a, a feminist uh, egalitarianism is the gateway to LGBTQ plus everything in the church, because it has to be. Not because it's a slippery slope. Uh, I think it is that, but that's not the reason, but because it works from a hermeneutic of contextualization, of a kind of hyper-contextualization. And again, that is in antagonism to an inerrant word of God that we can trust, um, even as it asks us to make sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And then one of the actual problems you get to after you've kind of fallen off that ledge is you start to create a gospel where you you make moral equivalencies where they don't exist. And one of the ways that that shows up is by saying things like, well, I know that homosexuality is a sin, but so is heterosexuality. Right. Okay, true. But homosexuality is a sin against both pattern and practice, whereas heterosexuality is a sin against practice. So can you, you know, if you go to the marriage of two unbelievers, you know, Joe and Susie, and, um, you know, they've been living together and they're unbelievers and they've had a little drug addiction problem. And, and, you know, somebody says, well, if you're going to their wedding, why don't you go to, you know, you know, Steve and Dan's wedding? Well, because if Joe and Susie commit their lives to Jesus, get it together, they don't have to divorce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is why I love that you started off by pointing this back to creation. And I, I, th I remember back in the two, two, 2010s um, era when the Anglican Church was, well, I guess even before that, when the Anglican Church was in such turmoil, one of the things that conservatives might like myself grabbed onto is anybody who identified as homosexual but said, I want to live faithfully according to the scriptures. And and that we were so happy to have people like that, that we didn't, we didn't, we let, we let the entire philosophy, the ideology of gender versus sex mm -hmm creep in because we thought we're holding the, we're holding the baseline here, but to right. do that, we had to let go of creation ordinances. Right. So. And, and I'd say there's something else we let go of too. I was just talking to some, some folks in a radio station in the UK yesterday, and they said something like, well, side B gay Christianity shares with you a biblical sexual ethic. And I said, no, it doesn't. And then there was that kind of awkward pause. <laughs> Not simply, <laughs> yeah. but but it, it it doesn't. Although again, I was part of the problem, right? I mean, there was a a time when, for some reason, I don't have a good excuse because I'm married to a pastor who has been telling me that I should know better for a long time. But um, um, for some reason, everybody thought misreading James one would be helpful to people. 
And what I mean by that is, you know, James 1, uh, let, this is James 1, starting with 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to yeah. sin, and sin, when sin. it is fully grown, brings forth death. And death. The, the side B gay Christianity offered a reading of this that is a heretical reading, it, it, and, it, and it's a Pelagianist reading. It is a neo-Orthodox reading. It is a, dare I say it, I'm going to say it, a Roman Catholic reading. But for some reason, even I and others who knew better, we all stood there on the stage and nodded and smiled because people can be tempted in two ways, not just one, right? We can be tempted like uh, Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife. He fled. That was a temptation from the outside. He managed that well. And that is how Jesus was tempted, right, by Satan after fasting for 40 days. Of course, he was hungry and he was tempted. That was a temptation from the outside. But because we have a sin nature that has not does not go away, it is subdued in our, it is um, uh, the, the, the righteousness of Christ is imputed in our justification and then the righteousness of Christ is infused in our sanctification as we grow and we work and we put to death our sin, but we still have a sin nature. And that's our Romans 7 reality. Mm -hmm. And so what James 1 is offering to us is the life cycle of sin, sin as an embryo, my internal sin, what John Owen would call my indwelling sin, that internal temptation. So if I have same-sex attraction, I have sin. I don't have a morally neutral temptation like I have a wart on my nose. I have sin that needs to be killed, and it needs to be killed until it's dead. That's the embryo of sin. And what we've done is we've taken a whole generation of young people, and we've said, Oh, you have same-sex attraction? Well, you're not, that's not a sin. You're and special. don't let anybody tell you that's a sin because you're going to be discouraged. So what we should do is just tell you, it's just a temptation. Just flee it, flee temptation and fight sin. But you're not, you're not sinning. And yet that's not what James 1 says. James 1 right. says that you are, when it is a temptation from inside, it is indeed the embryo of sin. And when are you, gentlemen, when am I, most likely to fight my sin when it's small like an embryo or when it's enormous like another person living with me. I mean, right, right. and so you have right. a whole generation. I don't believe in dragons. <laughs> yeah. But we have a whole generation of students, yeah. of young people who have been told not to fight their sin when they might have had a chance to fight it and win. And the only person I know who wants you to not repent of your sin is Satan. So it's yeah. a serious thing, and I'm as much at fault as any of them. When, I'm sorry. When this is where, I mean, having followed this, I mean, this has been part of our adult lives, um, you know, the past 20-something years. Mm -hmm. But I think it's this this intra-Christian debate has followed the same trajectory as the sort of initial biblical arguments about whether or not you could legitimately bless a same-sex attracted couple, which was in like the early, what do we call it, the aughts now? Remember 2006, 7, 8? <laughs> And for a little while, you had these like supposedly good faith efforts of saying, well, maybe we misunderstood Paul. Maybe, you know, the context in Corinth was different. Maybe, you know, maybe. And, you know, I was part of that discussion. I mean, you know, I was a little bit on, was still in seminary, but interacting in good faith saying, well, you know, maybe, I don't know, like, let's look at the Greek. Let's look at the, you know, mm -hmm. let's get into this. Mm -hmm. 
And as the conversation continued and it became clearer and clearer and clearer and people were doing the heavy lifting, you know, most notably I'm thinking of like Robert Gagnon's book, you know, mm -hmm. that like read every single possible language that was connected to the ancient Near East and, you know, sort of answered the question. Well, then, then the real sort of ideology read its head and it's like, well, actually we were just never actually going to submit to the, the Bible in this question anyway. And so so now now it's Paul is a misogynist, or perhaps he didn't even write that, or, you know, something entirely different. And, you know, you had this sort sort of industry of of, you know, good faith conservative Orthodox academics who were just left holding, you know, voluminous manuscripts and books, you know, all just sitting there making this case against a, a an opponent that now just invalidated the entire basis for the conversation. And so that's the difficulty is that I'd love to say that there was a there's a robust exegetical debate going on about this, um, but it has gone far beyond that. And I think to your to absolve you somewhat, Matt, I think that in 2010, you know, we didn't know what sexual identity in the way that it's talked about now was going to um, look like. And I think that even those, and this is the heartbreaking part I have for this, I think even, or maybe particularly some of those people who have been the most implicated in the development of this language were, were sort of um, inadvertently caught up in this kind of nefarious movement, because I think that they probably did start off, many of them saying, listen, I just somehow want to identify that this is the area of the temptation pattern that I face. Can yeah. I find some help in this? And I think there were some bad actors who said, yeah, you can find some help. We'll, we'll help you overturn I'm starting this a entire community. sexual ethic. That's right. <laughs> so, and, and that's been, that's been what I've, I've observed, but I think you're, you know, you're exactly right that this question of temptation and, and what we say concupiscence, which you've written about um, is really at the heart of it. And I think that, you know, there is a way to, to be a sort of Bible believing sort of understanding the indwelling sinfulness of sin. And there's a way to still be a casuist. And, and that's set before us in this whole discussion. Yeah. And if I can just lean in here on, on language, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a language person. One of the things that we were all trying to work with were these neologisms, these new words, they're not biblical words. And what we we didn't really see the whole Trojan horse in them at the time. And one of the things that I think is just crucial for us to do now is to realize that if you yield the moral language to the left, you don't have a biblical language anymore. And so once you yield the moral language to the left and you say things like, well, so-and-so is a same-sex attracted pastor and it's not a sin and it's a temptation and aren't, isn't everybody tempted and all this kind of nonsense, you have lost the whole idea that homosexuality is like every other sin on the planet found in the flesh, forbidden in the law, and overcome in the gospel. Amen. And if you can't proclaim a gospel of victory, what what do we have? I mean, my, my husband is a pastor. He works with folks from the rescue mission, mostly, you know, men who have been for decades homeless and drug addicted. Can you imagine him going and saying, well, Jesus loves you. Uh, nothing's probably going to change, but it's all good. You know, like, well, <laughs> let me tell you, I don't need that. I don't need that. I need I need to know that in Christ I can have this progressive sanctification that allows me to fulfill all that God has for me. Now, does God have biblical marriage for everyone? No, but is this idea that you have an indwelling sin pattern does that mean you should never be biblically married? 
show me one biblical marriage without two people with indwelling sin patterns. <laughs> now, of course, the difference is that homosexuality is an idol now, along with all of the other sexual identity letters. And I come from a reform tradition. Our job, we believe that you destroy our idols. You destroy idols and you proclaim the word of God. You do not coexist with idols. You do not live peaceably among idols. An idol is different than simply a, um, you know, our denominational differences. That's fine, you know. But if it is, a, if, if there is an idolatrous doctrine, it must go. I think the the attempt to grab onto identity, so sexual identity is something or gender identity as something different than your sex is just this kind of desperate attempt to save the self, or at least you think you're saving yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you know, if you, the, the horror for some people of the thought that I'm, I'm a sinner to the very core of my, of who I am. Mm -hmm. I, that's, that's hard for a lot, a lot of people find that really difficult to embrace. How could I possibly live my life thinking that I'm just a, a bad person all the way right. down to the core and it's not because right. of the outside stuff there it's because of the inside right. the inside stuff in right. here um what what i think people don't realize is how that sets you free once you once you do come to that conclusion you, and you can say yeah i so because that's true i'm not responsible for saving myself i i, I this is why i need the gospel this is why i need christ right this is why and, i have to have the indwelling of the holy spirit and that's why we have romans 8 after romans 7 that's right you know, so I mean, I think that, and you know, Thomas Watson talks about how the first, so he he's got this book, The Doctrine of Repentance, and he talks about six ingredients. And the first ingredient is recognizing sin as sin. And the problem with broad evangelicalism is it has only one category for sin. You know, it's almost like if you have one category for a robber, you know, robbers are always outside of your house and they want to break into your house. And so you're going to lock the they door. They have to wear a mask, security. too. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's right. But what if the robber is in the closet right back there? And he's been waiting for me the whole time. And I'm super at locking my doors. Oh, I'm a like, I've got a PhD in how to lock the door. Well, if that's my only strategy for dealing with sin, I will never deal with that sin that... Paul talks about in Romans 7, why do I do what I don't want to do? It is not I, but sin that dwells in me. So right there is the hope for people for whom homosexuality is an indwelling sin pattern. It is not I. That's what Paul says about you, about me. It is not I. It is sin that dwells in me. It's that robber back there in the closet. I've got to have a different strategy for, get, for getting rid of him. And it has to be killing him dead. I know I'm from the South. So we like to say that a lot about things that are in our house that, that, are, that don't have our permission to be there. <laughs> but there's no other way around it. I can't make peace with that robber in the closet. And yet that's exactly what side B gay Christianity wants to do. It talks about stewarding that sin or sublimating that sin and you know or in that... some cases celebrating i mean celebrating the you know you hear people talk about the positive aspects of certain aspects of these quote-unquote identities and yeah and that that's what you know thomas manton in his sermons on the book of james said thomas manton the puritan you know he says um about james 1 13 through 15 first we practice sin and deliberation then defend it then boast of it 
Sin is first our burden, then our custom, then our delight, then our excellency. Mm-hmm. This is the new talking point that you hear from side B all the time, right? That that in fact, their care for each other is better than the mm-hmm. care that a straight friend like that we might have as friends. They can love each other in a better, more holy way. Yeah. And, and it's just nuts. It's really, it's really delusional. And it's again, between our, ref- our inability or our refusal or our something in not teaching the proper understanding of internal temptation as a sin that must be repented of, not a temptation from which you flee by failing to help people, equipping them to fight their sin when they might have beaten it. We have something, we have a, uh, you know, I, as I do, I do. I have some uh, moral compunction in this. Amen. Right. I, and when I get into conversations with people like that, people who are taking maybe the revoice position, they'll want to make a distinction between you know, lust on the one hand, and they'll say, okay, yes, when I lust after somebody of the same sex, that's that's a sin. But but attraction isn't lust. You know, attraction is just uh, I have a I have a proclivity toward men if I'm a man. But I, you know, that's not always sin. Straight right? men have been making the appreciating the beauty of the Lord's creation for millennia. Yeah. And, you know, I guess, I don't know, for the hundreds of grief-stricken women who have come to me just in the last year and with a confession, Rosaria, I experienced same-sex attraction. Not one of them was talking about an artistic interest in the way that, you know, women's jaws are chiseled differently or something. Not one. Not one. We all know what that means when somebody comes in. And these are not just single women. These are married, you know. When pe- this is a sin, it is a it is a common to man sin, but we need to stop acting as though it is an ontological truth about personhood. That's right. That's right. No, I mean that reminds me of going back to what you said about the the well, we could just say the victory at the moment um, of the sort of gender theorists about the division between sex and gender. You know, this was seen. You know, talk about the church being behind the the times. I mean, they saw this clearly. From the moment it, it, you know, the sort of the post Enlightenment dechristianization reared its head, particularly like in the French Revolution, you know, the very first thing they did was outlaw monogamy. You know, the very first thing they, they, um, you know, um, uh, Margaret Sanger is explicit about this. You know, Kate, what is it, Kate Millett, Judith Butler, these people are yeah. explicit that if we can detach our biology that we're chained with from uh, the conception of what we are as women, well, then we'll be free. And, you know, and then, and so then you have at the same time, like the Episcopal Church, you know, saying, well, I guess there's certain parts of Margaret Sanger that are right. So we'll be the first to, you know, affirm birth control. We'll be the first to affirm no fault divorce. We'll be the first mm-hmm. to, you know, go ahead and de-stigmatize these various steps towards the gender revolution that were mm-hmm. just seen as victories from the progressives. And, right. you know, it's been heartbreaking to be a part of that. And we, we've done our own repenting. You probably haven't subjected yourself to all of our um, podcasts, but we have, we have done a fair amount of repenting from being complicit in the problem, if not explicitly advocates for it, but have now been been in the same strategy of trying to identify where we need to to have said that we were wrong or we were indifferent to a, to a fault um, and hopefully make some corrections to the sake of, of freeing some people earlier than we perhaps otherwise could have. Right, right. And, you know, a world that is growing in its homosexuality, transgenderism, and singleness is not a world being blessed by God. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that when you look 
at life from the you know perspective of now 2024, it, all of the exchanges that Romans 1 talks about, that's right. they've been codified into law. I mean, that's, you know, knowing what time it is is important. I do understand God is not constrained by time and space, but I am, you are. That's right. Well, and you look at Romans 1 and you say that, you know, if the devil were to attack the most sort of sacred thing that God created, it would be his image, his image right. bearers. And so you right. see that the height of idolatry and the, the peak of, of wrath is at the very place where the creative blessing of the union of men and women to bring a soul into existence is being perverted and desecrated. And right. so, you know, it's it's not surprising. It's just, right. it's been disheartening that there's been fewer fewer people like, well, like you speaking so clearly and churches as, as bodies speaking as definitively and as forthrightly. Um, I'm grateful in that respect for the ACNA, I have to say, you know, our connection to the global South and sort of these very courageous uh, bishops and dioceses around the world that have um, know what time it is and they see what's happening here and they have flatly rejected it. And right. we are edified and encouraged by them, albeit find ourselves in an increasing minority in the West, um, but are, are but are grateful for their support and encouragement. Right. And I think what's interesting because that, you know, we've all talked about how, well, we've all done this. Like we've all been, we've been soft on these things or we've been sort of not clear or we've been using neologisms. And I think we need to just help our listeners, or at least I want to help the people who are listening to anything I'm saying to know that that is the strategy of the heretics right now. It's not to come full force at us. It's to say, look, this just isn't a big deal. No. You know, and so you've got like Matthew Vines and God and the gay Christian says, you know, this passage is not of this passage being Romans one. It's just not of central importance to Paul's message in all of Romans. And and you've got, you know, Preston Sprinkle in his new book, Does the Bible Support Same Sex Marriage? You know, starting out with a decent topic sentence, he says, same-sex sexual relationships are mentioned in at least five places in scripture, and in each case, they are prohibited. Okay, I agree with you, Preston. But then he goes on to say, first, each of these five passages is in a context, it's always about context, people, where lots of other sins are listed, sins that are frequently committed by straight people. And so he concludes the paragraph by saying, well, he could actually almost quote Matthew Vines. He says, straight Christians should never wave these texts around as proof that gay people need to repent. Mm. Mm. Now, if we don't hold out what the Westminster Confession of Faith calls repentance unto life, then what hope is there? Amen. Repentance is the first word of the gospel. Jesus says, repent and believe. John the Baptist after him says the same thing. So if we don't, and plus, I'm not even going to talk about straight Christians, gay Christians. Those are right. Well, he's fallen. That's the ontological fallacy. Those are not categories. Right there. Yeah, right. Right, there, right there. You're, you know, you've you've already fallen into the into the trap of heresy. But but the you know, if you can't, if if no one, if we can't hold out the gift of repentance for those who are lost as we once were, then we have no gospel. Amen. We even have codified in our 39 articles in Article 9 that concupiscence is has the yeah. nature of sin. Like we we have we like with the Westminster Confession or standards, we have we have 
text we can point to. The problem is, you know, the context, um, you know, is so is the contextual aspect of it. But you're exactly right. I mean, I think that one of the things I personally have repented from is I used to teach Romans 7 is what an old theologian um, that I used to read called a, what do we call it? A litany of despair or a mm -hmm. um, sort of a, that it was, you know, this, despair. a council of despair. Thank you. That it was, mm -hmm. this is as good as it gets, you know, mm -mm, and mm -mm. because there is a truth, you know, people resonate with Romans 7 and, you know, I don't think I ever won't resonate to a certain degree with aspects of it. But at the same time, there are aspects there. There's a hopefulness and a and an expectation, certainly for the sake, I hope, for my neighbor, namely my wife and children, if not my congregation, that 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 is not the the sole descriptor of my life is like an abject confusion about all of the evil that I'm constantly doing and good right. that I wish I could do. And right. I and that took me a long time to you know, really, it was it was in growing in my own appreciation of what it would mean to sacrifice for love of neighbor to begin mm -hmm. praying against myself in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that took a while. And I and mm -hmm. I taught that incorrectly, um, I would have to say, for for longer than I'd like to admit. But but there we and go. And I think for me, you know, I just think it's easier to talk about these things theologically than to talk about them personally. I don't have any uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a scholar. I'm an introvert. I don't have any need to talk to a hundred people and get us all on the same page. But I think we need to figure out is Romans seven, Paul is a believer or an unbeliever. And is this, are we talking about indwelling sin of the believer of the regenerate man? And right. if that's the case, and I think we are, that's why we can move so powerfully into yeah, Romans amen. eight. Yes, yes. There is and look at how much no it is. Look yeah. at how wretched, you know, the miserableness yes. of sin. I mean, that's like Apostle Paul. <laughs> he didn't have a he didn't have a have a conference about celebrating whatever he was mm -hmm. lamenting, you know. So, so you have um, you have three pastors here, and um, at least I'll speak for myself. Increasingly, uh, the visitors we we coming through our doors, people you know, just coming off the street to to, to come to church. I, I've, I've noticed increased uh, an increasing gulf. And increasing distance between the kind of things you're going to hear from the pulpit, the Good Shepherd, and the Christian edu education, the Good Shepherd, and the kinds in, in the world they're living in, uh, the the schools their kids are going to, and and so as a pastor, I kind of uh, there's a little bit of a panic there. I don't I don't want to be so isolated from my community and people who might be coming to my church. At the same time, I don't want to be anything like <laughs> the world they're in. So, what would you tell pastors like us how how to navigate the coming? Well, I'm a pastor's wife, so I would tell yeah. you nothing, but I'll pray for you. But I will, I will tell you, if it's any consolation, I'll tell you what my husband does and what, what we Butterfields do. So like you all, Kent preaches a, a powerful sermon and our associate pastor, Drew Poplin, as well. In fact, I tell people, if you think I'm bold, you should just hear the preaching I sit under every week. And you'll think I'm a just, you know, kind of mealy-mouthed. But here's what we also do. We are out there. Our, our neighbors know where we stand. You know, we, um, uh, it, yeah, I don't know, we, we, we run the Christmas caroling in our neighborhood, the Saturday, this, this, you know, the, the, the weekend before whatever, whenever Christmas is, it was Saturday this year. We had 30 people come. And, and some of them are public school teachers who wanted to ask me why I'm taking these strong stands about transgenderism, uh, you know, at the school board. And so we can, you know, pass a cookie, hold a baby, 
uh, who's starting Jingle Bells uh, to, <laughs> to, and, and have these conversations. And we can do that because we're grownups. We spend no time on Twitter. We spend all of our time in real life with each other. And so um, when I go to the school board and I am booed and hissed and mocked, my 21-year-old son is my my bodyguard. He comes with me and he's he goes to a public university. And so he usually says two things, mom, this is what my school looks like. And two, this is the world that Jesus came to save. And we invite people from the school board over for dinner and they come. We invite parents whose children have been transed by these, uh, by the, you know, it, it's really a an anti-bullying legislation. It's federally mandated. It's in every government school. You shouldn't, you know, know what time it is. That's what time it is. Ever since 2021, it's been there. Um, your child is being taught that in order to not be a bully, he needs to be a trans ally. And if you're a girl, that relationship being between being an ally and being the thing you are allying yourself to is a very small gulf. Mm-hmm. It's a very yeah. small gulf. It's it's why rapid onset gender dysphoria is so pronounced right now in public schools. But we, you know, we do believe that you have your public conversations with people and you have your private ones. And the problem is the church has only seemingly wanted to have public ones. They've only wanted to have programs and preaching. Those are good things. Those are not bad things. Private ones make you more vulnerable. They know your address. You know, they know the the real names of your kids. It's a lot scarier, but I think it has to be. And I think it explains something about the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul was himself in all of his contexts. He had public contexts. He had private contexts. But how in the world could the Apostle Paul, could anybody say that the the chains of prison made him bold? That's what he says. He says, my my chains make me bold. And I think we need to ask ourselves if what would we, what would it take to get into a mindset where we could say that too? I think a lot of it has to do with practicing these genuinely faithful, but kind of hard, kind of hard, kind of testy conversations with the people you love close in and privately. Nobody's tweeting about them. Nobody's blogging about them, but they're real. They're hand on hand, they're heart on heart. And sometimes what we see is that when our relationships are strong, our words can be strong too. But when our relationships are weak or plastic or just always very formal, always very distant, always always separated by the roles we assume in the world and not just being moms together, dads together, neighbors together, then it's very hard to have strong words. They, they, they fall in hard places. They crack. But strong relationships and strong words don't make anything crack. They, they often lead people to Christ. Yeah. Speaking of leading people to Christ, that's your word for the church. What is your word for somebody who perhaps has had a tendentious relationship to the church, isn't sure, you know, they've heard a lot of things about how the church is hateful. They're not sure who they are. They're not sure who they might be attracted to. Mm-hmm. Um, what What is a sort of, as we kind of wrap up our time together here t- today, What's what does the good news of Jesus Christ have to offer somebody who is really unsure about whether or not church is a good thing at all? 
Right, right. And I'll tell you, half the churches that this person is probably looking at wouldn't be a good thing at all anyway. So I, I will... <laughs> Yeah, I will not. I will not be a a flag waver for uh, the 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 big Eva industry here. The church writ large. Yeah. Right, right, right. But here's what I would say. I would say that the Lord has put eternality in all of our hearts, and the the this this world shouts very powerfully that um, you can be anything you want to be. And there's not really any kind of stable category between male and female. There are 78 gender pronouns. There'll probably be 10,000 before, you know, this program airs for everybody to listen to. There's a lot of instability out there. And most people I know would come to us and say, well, and I've, I think I might be gay or I think I might be trans or at least I, I, can, I, can, under, I can feel this in my heart. I can see, I, you know, I, I'm non-binary. Call me they, uh, you know, depersonalize me in all of these ways. And what I would say, I would say two things. I mean, first, I'd want to get to know this person and find out if there is any trauma that is leading you to say those things. And I mean real trauma. I don't mean the trauma that Big Eva has made up. I mean real trauma. I mean sexual abuse. I mean vi mm. I mean genuine violence against person and soul. And if that's the case, we need to help that person deal with their trauma. Sometimes homosexuality and transgenderism and this kind of this this new category of gender non-binary, sometimes those are defense mechanisms that are operated by childhood trauma. And one of the things we all know is that you can be both both sinner and sinned against. In spite of what King Lear says, you know, the, the gospel makes it clear that you can be both at the same time, but you are responsible for your sin. So I would really tenderly want to get to know that person and find out if there is some inner trauma that needs to be dealt with and find a good biblical counselor and help that person deal with that trauma, because you're not going to be able to get much, very far without that. But then I would want to hold out the great beauty of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not me, not my problems, not what he did for me necessarily, but who he is, the majesty of, of the, our triune sovereign God, the amazing reality of what it means that God made the mountains and told them where to stand and that they did. And, you know, looking at something like Psalm 78, you know, the moon and the sun know exactly where they are. No, the moon doesn't get up one day and say, you know, I think I want to be the sun and somehow think that that would be freedom and that that would be liberty. Mm -hmm. And so my own move is to speak somewhat philosophically about the grand story of the created order. Mm -hmm. And then what it means to have a God who wants to know you. Mm -hmm who actually cares to know you and who wants to be known as well. And then finally, the community of the church, where these hard things are proclaimed so that you too can be blessed by them, where there is something called a means of grace. These aren't just lectures with good ideas. These are supernatural elements, the water and the blood and the bread. And um, in my church, I think probably in yours as well, we celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly. We have a table address weekly. We understand what it means to be someone who stands in union with Christ weekly, the seriousness and the liberty of that. And so what it means to literally stand in the means of grace, like you're standing in a, in a river 
that is rushing and it is it is impactful and it is powerful. And then finally, what it means that this God that you serve has is the keeper of history. He is the owner of history. Not only is he the creator of the world and of you and everything in it, but he is the owner of history and that he will return someday. And at that day, every knee will bend. It doesn't matter. Dead, alive, as he was risen from the grave, the resurrected Christ and the power that that gives to believers, when he returns, all will be reunited. The body isn't evil necessarily. Mm. In fact, we have, part of the resurrection proves to us that the body is not evil. And Christians will have a glorified body. And at that moment, we will be inhabiting a place where there is no sin and there's no regret. We'll have no regrets about what we did or what we didn't do or who's there or who's not there. And just the, the, the amazing honor that it is to be part of that, to be part of that world where a new heavens and a new earth are established for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. Yeah. And so that's the story. That's the story it, that is that is the true grand narrative of each and every person's life. Image bears all, every one of us, to help people not not throw that away, remembering that there is meaning and purpose and grace in our suffering. In fact, we're called to suffer. We're called to shore up in fellowship with Christ our sufferings uh, for the glory of God. And that wonderful passage in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, as it's sometimes called, will all be saved. Some will be saved from the mouths of the lions, and some will be sawn in two. Now, it doesn't sound to us from this perspective like that both is equal, but God puts an equal sign between them. Mm. And so there is meaning and purpose and grace and majesty in living for Christ alone, dying to self, picking up the cross, and being a covenant member of a Bible-believing church, and knowing that those people with whom you share the blood of Christ, that's your family. That's a family of God. And those are your friends. And Amen. that's the greatest message. And I will never tire of telling the whole world about that message. Do you want to, yeah, I mean, we've gone over time, but I mean, I was interested if there's any kind of prophetic insight about the direction that this discussion is going to take who should we be reading? How should we be equipping ourselves? <laughs> I don't think it's prophetic, but if feedback from my Liberty address is any, uh, yeah. if, if that could give us any kind of sociological map, I would say this. Um, this is going to be the line that is that needs to be drawn right now in evangelicalism. Do you believe that same-sex attraction is a morally neutral temptation from which you must flee or do you believe that it is a morally culpable sin which you must own and repent from? Yep. That is the line. Yep. And although I do not want to write another book because I never like to write books, I am too lazy. I really like to just <laughs> read books with a cat on my lap and a cup of coffee by my side, but it might need to be the next book. I mean, there are many good books on concupiscence right now. And I'll tell you one that I really like. Oh, boy, did I get in trouble for blurbing this one, too. <laughs> it's uh, 
Jared Moore's book, The Lust of the oh, Flesh. Yeah. I just bought Thinking that. Biblically About Sexual Orientation, Attraction, and Temptation. I've had people say, I can't believe you blurbed that book. I say, did you read the book? It's a really <laughs> good book. It's actually, um, an actual, uh, you know, Mark Jones blurbed it as well. So it's not just me hanging out there in a limb, but it's probably the easiest, the simplest introduction about concupiscence to lay, mm. lay people. And then Mark Jones's book, Knowing Sin, uh, seeing a neglected doctrine through the eyes of the Puritans is mm. extremely good. It talks about the ethics of sin. So those two books together, I think, would be really important. Um, but I, I do think, oh, well, I'll, I'll add one more. And this is also a real, just this is an accessible book on John Owen's uh, concept of indwelling sin. So these are books you could hand to somebody who has no theological training. Chris Lungard, The Enemy Within, straight talk about the power and defeat of sin. So um, what I would say is that we don't want the next generation to be lost like the last one. We don't want them to feel like they can't fight their sin. They're just stuck with it. And that's that's not the gospel message. So I would say the line is around this question of concupiscence, this question of indwelling sin. And like it or not, where we stand matters because to claim a Pelagiast, neo-Orthodox, I'm going to say it, Roman Catholic definition of temptation and indwelling sin is heresy. So that might be the title of the next book, since I know I'm <laughs> a bad girl for using that word. But you know what? I use it because I like church history. I'm not, I'm not trying, it's not like I'm trying to like swear, you know, in public or something. <laughs> I'm, I'm using it because... It's a church history word. And then finally, if I don't have, this is not prophetic. This is just Rosaria, the grandmother speaking. Let us not lose our Christian witness one to another because of what we do and say on social media. There have been so many times when I'll recommend a book and somebody will say, oh, but do you know his Twitter persona? I No, I don't. I also don't know what pajamas, you know, like how would I know his Twitter persona? I'm not on Twitter. And I have no intention of being on Twitter. So, but as soon as I hear people say things like that, I know there's a problem. So it, we would do well to be mindful. Social media is a contextless art form at best. And we would do well to be mindful of how we're coming across there. Um, mm. You know, I'd rather have, like, I just like to have the real fight in the street. Thanks. <laughs> and since I didn't throw the first punch, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. Rosaria is a six shooters at high noon sort of girl. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I don't want to speak for everyone. Well, I will speak for everyone. I, I have uh, since your first book, The Unlikely Convert. I have been um, encouraged and edified, and have been following you, and I'm just so grateful. Um, yes. You know, as pastor, as a preacher, we have people who um, you know we preach to and never see again, and stone hearts and stiff necks, and you know all the things, and to have a a uh, persistent reminder that, you know, yeah. it doesn't always have to be the case is really, really encouraging. So um, we pray for you and we're Amen. encouraged by you. So thank you. Thank you. And I really appreciate your prayers. Thank you. I need them.
Well, and thank you, listener, for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy, and a special thank you to Rosaria Butterfield. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh,